Welcome to The Fairer Sense. With me, Tanya. And me, Kara. Women, money, and the fight to break even. Because we give a shit. And you should too. Exploring Financial Relationships Part 2, Money and Family. Hey, Kara. Hello, Tanya. Here we are in the twilight zone. (laughs) Truly, it is a wild time. I think everyone in the world literally is feeling the same way we are, which is a little scared, a little panicky, a little confused and addicted to news updates. Yeah, or social media, maybe. That's certainly my situation. I pretty much am spending like eight hours a day on Twitter right now. It is not good. Oh, yeah. Yesterday, I did a huge big story on my Instagram breaking down like what was happening with the Fed and what these stimulus packages meant. And if you want to go check that out, it's at We Bravely Go on Instagram and it's saved as a highlight under recession. But I spent so much time on my phone researching and then making the content and then also just reading Twitter because I'm also addicted. And T-Bone literally was like, I'm concerned about how much time you spend on your phone today. So I had to like put it down and walk away in the evening. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to this. That is definitely kind of the the vibe I'm getting at the moment. And I will say we are going to talk all about family and money today. But given what's going on in the world right now, particularly with the coronavirus going around and people starting to be in what I would say in air quotes is lockdown you know, there, there's stuff going on with that and markets crashing and, and it feels like a scary time. So we have to talk about it for a few minutes and then we'll segue in a lovely way over to family stuff because it, it is connected. It's all connected. You know, I mean, we live in a very hyper-connected world. And I think the thing that I want to really stress to our listeners is, especially if you are addicted to social media and you find yourself pressing refresh, 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 really consider the sources of the information you're consuming. If what you're basing your opinions or your actions on is something that Joe5959700 tweeted, maybe maybe take a beat and consider why should I trust this random person? You probably shouldn't. You know, I do think it's a huge help to ourselves and to the people around us to say, I vetted this information before I acted on it. If you got any information from Fox News, anything connected to Fox News, anything connected to the politically oriented side of the internet, it's worth questioning the veracity of that. There really is a ton of misinformation out there. There is a link that we will share in the show notes to a BuzzFeed running list of debunked myths about the coronavirus that's worth checking out. Yes. So staying informed, staying aware, super important. But I have to say there are a few things that I'm hoping the coronavirus kills off. Not going to lie. Like, for example, I would love it if the coronavirus kills off this idea that we in the United States do not need universal health care because we obviously do. Yes. Amen to that. Also, no paid sick leave. What the fuck is that? I think we're all seeing now what a huge policy mistake it is. Now we have a situation where tons and tons of people are going to be forced to go to work sick, which is going to spread the illness to more people, get more of us sick. Even the wealthy aren't immune. I mean, if there's anything that I actually find like a tiny bit of justice in, it's that so many of the cases we've heard of are celebrities or people in power. I'm not happy that Tom Hanks has the coronavirus or anything like that, but I do think it's a really good thing for people to see that they're wealthy are not immune. Oh my gosh, Idris Elba has coronavirus and I'm like, no, we need your face. (laughs) Don't leave me, Idris. Um, 
Yes, I know. I think something else I'm hoping the coronavirus kills is a little bit of class division. I hope that we can have a little more class solidarity after this and understand really how far we all are from being billionaires and having our money protect us in some ways and understand that there are certain things that are going to come for us all. And the coronavirus is definitely one of them. I also personally, as a as an immunocompromised person from birth, basically, hope this is the death of handshakes. Mm. I would like the coronavirus to kill off shaking hands. <laughs> oh my gosh. Something I had never really thought of before six days ago where I was like, mm, elbow bumps. <laughs> you know? I've always been a big fan of just like the awkward wave. If someone's like, oh, hey, I'm like, hi. <laughs> it's such a weird like patriarchal thing too, because people judge how good your handshake is. And it's very much judged on the idea of what like a six foot two man would do as a handshake. And uh, yeah, as women, I think we can agree that that's not a great standard for us, but let's use this as a good moment to just get rid of it. Hands are gross. They're dirty. As we've learned from all this, a huge percent of people aren't washing their hands properly. I don't want to shake that shit. Let's just stop. Oh my God. The statistics on men not frigging washing their hands, especially after using the bathroom, disgusting. Absolutely Public disgusting. bathrooms. <laughs> and listen, this is not uh, one of those like hashtag Kara hates men thing because I, in the in my heteronormative relationship, I'm the gross one. Like I'm the dirty one. So like I know hashtag not all men, but oh my God, wash your hands. <laughs> wash those hands. Wash them a lot. Use lots of good hand lotion after, cheap hand lotion, expensive lotion, whatever you're into. Keep them moisturized, but clean those hands. Yes. And don't shake them. Yeah. And for all the people who are working from home for the foreseeable future or the next couple of weeks, we did want to hit you as veterans of that work from home life with some self-care tips and some work from home tips. My biggest tip I have to say for productivity from working from home is to have a designated space where you're working. I understand not everyone has a spare bedroom or something like that, but even if you can, you know, pick a, a corner of your living room, you know, move the chair out of the way, put a little table desk or something over there and say, this is our workspace. That will really make a big difference in how you're thinking of this is my relaxing area and this is my productivity area. Another big self-care thing that I am huge on, I've been doing this for about a year and a half, is I do not take my phone into the bedroom ever. So that way, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do can't be like, reach for my phone, spend 30 minutes scrolling on it. No, that's so bad for your sleep cycle. And it's a really terrible way to just either start or end your day to jump right into social media. So big self-care thing, leave your phone in a separate room while you sleep. You're my hero for actually pulling that off. I have always aspired to that and I still uh, have never actually achieved it. My phone is with me at all times except in the shower pretty much. Mm. And, but then it's like three feet away outside the shower. I, yeah. I also try not to bring it into the shower though. I have to say actually <laughs> – I used to try that so much more. Now I'm listening to my Lizzo when I'm in the shower and I'm like, yeah, blame it on the juice. Blame it, blame it on the juice. Just shimmying in the shower. It's great. <laughs> Speaking of showers. <laughs> oh, yes. It's impressive that, that you do that. I think that is a self-care tip that I do not do enough is actually just like take a shower. Try to feel like a clean human who could go out into the world if you were going to, which right now you're not. Stay home. But, you know, doing a little bit of like personal hygiene is definitely a good thing to focus on just to help hit reset sometimes. Yes. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I'm the dirty one in my relationship and T-bone showers every day. And I 
do not. I'm going to be honest. I don't shower every day, except in the Austin summers. You have to. I mean, that's just self-preservation. <laughs> but I will say not just showering, but making sure that you're like taking a second to floss at night, doing a little extra in terms of making yourself feel like a real person, especially now, is really going to go a long way. For me, washing my face at night and doing the whole thing and doing a multi-step skincare routine feels very luxurious. None of those products are super expensive, but just taking the time to do that and saying, okay, like bedtime is like a half hour thing now, or even if it's just 10 minutes, but it's more than five seconds of splash a little water, do a really quick toothbrush. It's like the whole thing. It is very grounding. It makes me feel like I'm not just like a lazy piece of shit who's laying on the couch, which I am some of the time also, but doing those little things, I I think it's just like it's really good both to actually take care of ourselves, but to reinforce this idea that, hey, I'm doing okay. I'm taking steps to keep myself healthy and alive. And that feels really good. It's really, really calming and grounding at a time when the whole world feels really chaotic. Yeah. Another good thing that I used to do all the time, I did this all throughout college and probably four or five years after college, I would do 20 squats at night while I brushed my teeth. And then in the morning, I would do 60 calf raises. I would just go up on my toes and come down and do 60 of those. And it was a way, it started off just as me trying to figure out how long should I be brushing my teeth for <laughs> because I didn't really know. And 20 squats felt like a good amount of time. And now they're saying, because we have to be washing our hands for, you know, I think like 30 seconds, do those squats. I think that can also be a nice thing to do to just connect with your body in a way, especially if you're not able to get out to the gym gym or you're not able to do as much movement as you normally do, sneaking in some ways to connect with your body throughout the day. I no longer do those squats because my knees have started to hurt. (laughs) Hashtag old age. But um, in the mornings, I make tea and I like to do jumping jacks while the water boils. Whatever small ways make you feel like you. I need some footage of all this, like oh any footage of like the calf raises <laughs> while brushing. And this sounds really inspiring and also hilarious. And that's like the kind of content we all need right now. Oh yeah. Maybe I'll have T-Bone film me tomorrow morning because I'm (laughs) doing my jumpy jacks in my robe, just looking like a fool. I want to also talk a little bit about things you can do with your money right now because of course people are panicked about that. We've got stock markets tanking. We've got people, some already losing jobs, others looking at that as a very real possibility, people who are freelance looking at losing client work, and that stuff's real. So first, I think we just want to say we see you. Second, and this is not investment advice, which we are not qualified to give. If anyone's telling you buy this, buy that, sell this, sell that, they are most likely selling you snake oil. Don't listen, especially if they are a politician elected to office. But this is a good time to maybe just don't even look at the stock market. Like don't even look at that stuff. The advice I've been giving to people pretty broadly is hold on to as much cash as you can right now, whether that's because you might be out of work or might not have regular income for a while or because some stuff's probably going to get more expensive as people people are hoarding or we have shortages of things depending on how long the crisis lasts. But focusing on saving cash or holding on to cash is a really good thing. And as a side bonus, if if you're sitting at home, you're most likely spending less. So like canceling trips uh, sucks is a huge bummer if you're doing that, but it's saving money. So yay. (laughs) And something I just want to clarify is that cash doesn't necessarily mean like cash in your underwear drawer or (laughs) like it doesn't have to necessarily be cash on hand. It can just be your emergency fund in a bank. I've had to clarify that a lot to people. It's more so not just 
spending everywhere or throwing all your money into the market. You want to have some liquidity. Yes. Cash is dirty. We're not talking about paper money. Yeah. We're talking about cash savings, like savings accounts, checking accounts. Those are your two good vehicles. Yes. The other piece of advice that I've been giving a lot of people is now, while times are still relatively good before we get into like really the thick of things and possibly enter a recession, is to really sit down and audit your money and understand what are our assets? What do we owe? What are our liabilities? What is our spending? And then ask yourself, okay, in our regular spending, what can we cut back on? Are we eating out a lot? Do I spend too much on such and such, you know, whatever area? And then if you can try and reduce your debt load, if your cash is on point, you're feeling good about your emergency fund, try and re- reduce that debt because the less you owe during a recession, it means the more you own. And that's good. That's what we want for you. Absolutely it is. And then segueing into what we are here to talk about today, this is a continuation of the two-parter that we started with the last episode about money in relationships. Last time we talked in episode 39 about money and friendships. Today we're talking about money and family. But we're really hopeful that this can, you know, as much as things are looking bad and grim right now, we're hoping that this can be a positive in that it opens the door to have more money conversations with everyone in your life. Whether it's as simple as saying, hey, is your income impacted by the coronavirus? Is there anything that you need? Is there anything I can do for you? It's checking in on neighbors saying, hey, do you have everything? Do you need any extra supplies? I've got some extra toilet paper over here. I've got some extra hand sanitizer. Are you good? It's checking in just to take care of each other. But some of that requires having financial conversations. And I see that as a potential good thing because it really only hurts all of us when we don't talk about money at all. Absolutely. You know I agree. And we're going to hear from our fabulous guests about some of the hows around to have this conversation, but obviously everyone's situation is different. But we really encourage you to have these conversations, to open the door to this now and let this become a part of your life so that if you do have to have maybe a difficult money conversation down the line, you've opened the door to having that conversation. with Cameron Huddleston, author of Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. And the first thing I asked her was, how can younger people bring up money with their parents if they're seeking advice? I think people who are just starting out are in such a good position to have this conversation because it's going to seem natural if they're simply asking their parents for advice, which is what parents love to do, give their kids advice. And so, you know, when you are starting out and you're in your first job or, you know, have the opportunity to save for retirement for the first time, naturally, you're going to have a lot of questions. And who do you go to for help? Your parents. And maybe they don't have all of the answers for you, but it's a great way to ease into the conversation, perhaps establish that relationship, that side of the relationship with your parents. Maybe you've never talked about money before, but this is your entree into the topic. So saying, hey, mom and dad, now that I am working, do I need to be saving for retirement? You know, my employer offers me an opportunity to contribute to a 401k, a 403b. Do you think I should be doing this? And your parents answers will give you insight 
most likely into what they've done. Or maybe you say something like, hey, mom and dad, I need to budget, but I have no idea how. What do you do? Tell me what you do to stay on top of your spending. And, and maybe your parents haven't done a good job themselves. And it's an opportunity for you guys to kind of figure it out together. Oh, you know, your parents might say, well, you know, we just kind of, you know, wing it or whatever they might say. And you say, well, you know what, maybe we should look up some stuff online. Keep the conversation going so that it becomes a natural part of your relationship to have these conversations. And you might be surprised. I mean, your parents might have some awesome advice for you. Hopefully they will. But if they don't, this is a way for you guys to start learning together and to keep these conversations going so that it's not a taboo topic. What are your thoughts about talking to parents when there might be a generational or a cultural divide? I'm thinking primarily here about, you know, first generation Americans whose parents are immigrants and they have very different mindsets a lot of the time about money. I know a lot of immigrant parents are really debt averse. Um, they're really focused on education. And if you're a first generation or you just have a different cultural mindset, how do you kind of bridge that gap? If you're going to be talking to your parents about their finances, your finances, first of all, everyone should be having these conversations. You need to be respectful of your parents first and foremost, because you have to keep in mind, these are your parents. And even if you're an adult now, they might still think of you as a child. So you can't come in and look like you know everything and that you are being critical of the way they are doing things. So keep that in mind. And, you know, maybe you do know more than your parents. Maybe they're very reluctant to have these conversations and you don't understand why. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you, mom and dad. Why don't you want to talk about this? I mean, what's wrong with you? We're, you know, we're Americans now. Everyone talks about money in the U.S. Well, first of all, that's not true. But you don't, you don't want to sound condescending. You don't want to sound like you're judging your parents. I think it's so important before you even start having these conversations is to think about how money was discussed in your family while you were growing up. Did you talk about it at all? If you didn't, you should probably realize that it might be a taboo topic for your parents. Understanding the reasons why they might be reluctant to have these conversations can help you figure out a way to approach the conversation. You know, if money is a taboo topic, you don't want to start out by asking about the details of their finances. You want to talk about something more general. You want to make them feel comfortable having the conversation. And you have to realize that if they've never talked about money with you, if they didn't talk about it in their family, they might be quite reluctant to have these conversations. So you do have to ease into them. You have to realize that it can take time. And it might just be a matter of sharing some things that you've learned, not even asking them questions about their finances, about their financial planning, but saying, I read this article about scams. Have you heard about people calling and claiming that they're the IRS and that you owe money and if you don't pay, you're going to go to jail? Find an example, an article, a story to get the conversation started. So your book is about talking to parents about money and specifically with a focus on caring for their finances as they age. What are some topics that you as the child should cover with aging parents and how can you bring it up gracefully? If you're just starting out in your 20s, ask for advice because parents love giving advice. And honestly, this is when the conversations should be starting, when your parents are still relatively young, before there are any health issues, ideally before they've even retired. And the reason it's important to start when your parents are young is because you can plan for those emergencies. 
you can get an idea of whether your parents have enough money to live comfortably in retirement. You can get an idea of whether they might need support from you. And then you can start preparing your own finances if you have to step into the role of being a caregiver. The sooner you start, the better you're going to be able to plan. And you might be able to gently encourage your parents to take some steps that would put them into a better position financially so that they will be less likely to have to rely on you for support. If you are in your 30s already, in your 40s, and it would be kind of awkward to say, hey, mom and dad, I need your advice on whether I should be saving for retirement. Because at that point, hopefully you've taken that step. Maybe you haven't, but asking for advice might seem a little bit more awkward. But at that point in your life, you likely have a story you can share. You likely know someone who has been involved with a parent's finances in one way or the other. Maybe the parent died without a will. Maybe you have a colleague who had to step out of the workforce for a while to care for a parent. Use that story as an example to get the conversation started. Hey, I know someone and this happened to them. It was very difficult for their family. I would like to talk to you about what we can do to prevent a situation like that from happening. Or you can just simply ask a what if question. What if you were in the hospital and I needed to pay your bills for you? I needed to make sure your bills were getting paid. How would that happen? I had a friend who did this and it worked incredibly well. Her mother is divorced, living on her own. And her mother said, you know, I'm so glad you asked that because I never even thought about that. She went home, made a list of all her bills, how they were paid. It was as simple as that. What's really important to find out is whether they have essential estate planning documents. This includes a will or a living trust, and that spells out who gets what when you die, power of attorney, and a living will, also called an advanced healthcare directive. And those latter two documents really are more important than the will, because if you have to step in and get involved with your parents' finances, as I have with my mom because she has Alzheimer's disease, that power of attorney document has to be in place while your parents are still mentally competent to sign it. A power of attorney lets you name someone to make financial decisions for you. You can't simply sign checks for your parents. You can't conduct financial transactions for them. You really can't even go into their bank account and move money around unless you have been named power of attorney for your parent. Living will, that spells out what sort of end of life medical care you do or do not want. And typically this document will allow you to name someone to make healthcare decisions for you. If your parent is in the hospital and the doctor needs to talk to someone to find out what sort of treatment to provide, the doctor won't be able to talk to you in most cases unless you've already been named your parent's healthcare power of attorney. So you want to find out if your parents have these documents If they've named you the power of attorney, if they've named a sibling, if your dad has named your mom, and if your dad, for example, has named your mom, there should be a backup in case something happens to both of your parents. And, you know, maybe it's you, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's another trusted family friend. These documents have to be in place. They have to be signed while your parent is still mentally competent. If there is a stroke, if there is a car accident, if there is uh, dementia, at that point it can be too late. And then you have to go through the court process to be named a conservator or guardian. And this can take several months and cost you thousands of dollars to go through this process. So find out if they have these documents. If they don't, encourage them to meet with an attorney, to have them drawn up, find out how they pay their bills, have a conversation about long-term care. People we love living longer, very cool. People we love running out of money later in life, not cool. 
AgeUp is a new product issued by Mass Mutual and sold by Haven Life that helps solve the problem of loved ones outliving their money. AgeUp buffers families from the financial strain of supporting loved ones who live longer than their current financial reality allows. Here's how it works. AgeUp helps adult children in their 30s and 40s who worry their parents won't have enough money to last into their 90s and beyond. You pay the monthly premiums for AgeUp and then receive the monthly payouts once your parent reaches the trigger age. The purchase process is simple, straightforward, and 100% digital. There's no upfront contribution required, and monthly premiums can start as low as $25. Women are paid less throughout their career and are more likely to be family caregivers. AgeUp is a product that can help lessen financial burdens on women as their parents age. Head to age-up.com slash thefairersense to get started and see how AgeUp can help you provide for a loved one who lives past 90. That's age-up.com slash thefairersense. Big thanks to cloud accounting software FreshBooks for sponsoring season four of The Fairer Sense, the third season of the show they've sponsored in its entirety. We love FreshBooks, both because they've been such a big supporter of The Fairer Sense and because they provide the simplest, easiest to use cloud accounting software out there, which you can try by visiting freshbooks.com slash TFC. If you're a small business owner or freelancer, there are so many things you have to think about, from actually making money to keeping track of it. FreshBooks takes the work out of getting paid, so you can focus on doing the work you need to do to keep your business running. With FreshBooks, you can create a customized invoice, track all your income, and link a business credit card to automatically track business spending. FreshBooks makes it super simple to do your accounting, and it makes accounting one less thing you need to worry about as a business owner, so you can focus instead on crushing the financial patriarchy. Head to freshbooks.com slash TFC to claim your 30-day free trial and enter the fairer sense in the how did you hear about us section. You get to try a great product while supporting us. That's freshbooks.com slash TFC. I spoke to blogger and friend of the podcast, Revanche, who writes the blog A Guy Sean Life. She's had some really challenging money interactions with family. There's just no way to sugarcoat it. She has had to pay for her family since the age of 17 for the most part, including when her mom died. She was fully supporting her dad and recently had to cut him off entirely, both emotionally and financially, and has blogged about that extensively. We started out the conversation talking about how she was raised to see herself financially in relation to her family. There was pretty much never a time that I could think of myself as just an individual who was not tied to her family in some way when it comes to money. There's a very, very strong emphasis in my family and you know throughout our familial community that you are not a single person. You are a person within a family group, within a community, and you're all interconnected. So while I'm tempted to say I didn't step up to deal with familial money issues until I was almost an adult, there was no point in my life where I considered myself solely responsible for myself. You were always aware in my family that as a child, you would be taken care of when you became an adult and had children of your own because not having them was not a choice. 
you would then turn around and take care of your parents. And that cycle also came with the expectation that your parents were going to help you with the next generation. So it's sort of this weird Ouroboros situation where it never really ends. There's your responsibility to your family, whether in person or monetarily, it does not end. I'd like to read something you wrote on your blog because it's just really beautifully written and tells such an emotional story. You wrote, I was 17 when I learned we were more than broke. We were in debt, deeply in debt, and my parents saw no way out of the quicksand they had built our lives on. Credit cards were used to make ends meet too often. It wasn't frivolous, but it was absolutely foolish. When their siblings needed cash or a parent needed a replacement something, they turned to my parents. Saying no is not an option for that generation, so they found a way. Half a lifetime of solving other people's crises left them carrying six figures of debt on credit cards and personal and business loans. Just, I think about realizing all of that at age 17, where you said you were almost an adult, but still, you you were still a kid. And the weight of that must have felt enormous. What did that feel like at the time to have that realization? And what did that kind of trigger for you in terms of, of what you realized you needed to do both for your family and for yourself? Having just said, you know, you spend your entire life knowing you're supposed to take care of your parents when you're an adult. For me, it was an inevitable thing that I would step up. So it wasn't a matter of if I would jump, it was how high. It was a question of how much can I do, not if I would do it. You know, when I wrote that, it was with the clarity of hindsight, because at 17, I didn't fully grasp how bad it was. It was, to use a terrible metaphor, I was the frog that was getting boiled alive for a long time. Because when I first found out about some of the issues with the debts, I was only seeing part of the picture. I didn't see the vastness of them. I didn't realize it ran to six figures. I wasn't at 17, the only one paying any bills for at least another year. My mom did her level best to work any job, to make any money, to help make ends meet. So over the course of a few years, I was slowly taking over the debt payments, the bills, pretty much so that by the time I was maybe 22, I was paying for everything. But it was a long, gradual, painful, but very naive process. I really honestly thought I could take care of this thing. So it was both emotionally incredibly tough to be facing that at a time when exactly none of my friends were going through anything remotely similar. Everyone was off to college, paid for by their parents, paid for by their scholarships, paid for in one way or another. I was the only one doing what I was doing, and that was tough. But I hadn't fully emotionally grasped the enormity of what I had taken on really until after I was half boiled, (laughs) you know, to go back to the horrible metaphor. I was thinking as you were talking about that, about social support, and did you feel like you had friends or similar aged relatives you could talk to about this? Or did you feel like you were really carrying that weight all alone, even though obviously you had to do the work and earn the money yourself? Did did you feel like you had support around you to help? In my peer group, no. That's actually why I started blogging was because not a single person had a clue why I had to or felt like I had to do what I was doing when I was doing it. You know, certainly there were a lot of complications with my mom's health, taking a real nosedive during that period as well, my health. 
getting dramatically worse, which skewed my perspective quite a bit. I certainly felt like my own chronic illness, which was another point on which my peers could not relate to me, made me empathize with my mom's situation much, much more. And I couldn't see myself abandoning her when I myself was struggling with an undiagnosed chronic pain issue. And these were things that my peers simply could not relate to. They tried to support, they tried to be moral support, but they were coming from such a vastly different perspective. I really did not feel like I had anyone to talk to in, in an honest, supportive way. Yeah. Hearing you talk about that, it's, it's so heartbreaking because certainly you're not the only person who's had to support family from a young age or who's had to manage multiple difficult situations. But because it's something we tend not to talk about, you may have been bumping into folks with similar situations every day and just not knowing it if they weren't in your immediate friend group. And it's such a shame that we don't talk about it more. I'm curious too, obviously it's impossible to separate things because you lost your mom at a young age. You, as you mentioned, have chronic health conditions. You have a child who you have to think about now and are married. But I'm curious, do you believe that having to help support your family and having to weigh their needs in all of your life choices, do you think that it put your life on a different trajectory? If you just remove one variable, what would things look like now? And I think particularly in probably, let's say, the last eight years, if I hadn't had that financial burden, we'd be in a very, very different place financially. I just about killed myself supporting my dad on top of building my life with my husband and my child that we have today. So financially, it's most definitely a very different trajectory to where we would have been. In terms of career choice, even from the point that I graduated college, you would even go back to during college. I never did an internship. I never did travel abroad. I never did study abroad. I never took about a million different potential opportunities that I was interested in because I couldn't afford to. I would have been able to afford to if I was just fending for myself, if I was just paying for my own bills and paying for college tuition. But I was always too busy making rent and keeping the lights on and the water running. So I have at least a thousand other possible paths I know I wasn't even really aware of because I would see them and I would actually just shut myself down and say, well, not an option for you. Yeah. And particularly because you started out talking about that there's an unwritten kind of contract of you're going to help, but then they're going to help. Everybody helps everybody. It goes both directions age-wise. And you found yourself in a situation where you were doing all the supporting and there was no reciprocity. Nobody was then helping you in turn. And that ultimately led to you cutting off your dad financially. And I don't want to make you rehash all of that. And we'll be sure to link in the show notes to the multiple posts where folks can read about your journey to make that choice and the aftermath of it. But one of the things that you wrote about it that I thought was just really, really touching was you said, for more years than I've been a legal adult, I've been a dutiful daughter working her fingers to the bone and back to support her nuclear family, only building her own life after her parents were taken care of. My whole identity, my story was entwined with their futures and their comfort. But because my dad wasn't who I thought he was, the very foundation of that which myself was based on has been shaken to pieces. 
that I think is is so well written, but also I think that goes beyond what people might imagine if they think about someone who's supporting family, that it wasn't just a financial transaction. It was really core to your identity and that having tension within that relationship was identity shaking. How have you moved forward from that and, and been able to reconstruct an identity that involves being okay with not playing the role that you had always believed you would you were supposed to play? I am absolutely nowhere near reconstruction yet. I am not awesome with emotions. I am not really good with having feelings and accepting that they are a valid thing. For many, many years up to even through this year, I think my go-to was take care of the things you're supposed to take care of, package your emotions about it up into a nice little box, put a bow on it and put it away. There's no blueprint for me here. There is no roadmap for me to say, wow, everything that I grew up quote unquote knowing and everything that really formed the core of who I was and top to bottom, I was responsibility. There was really no guide for me to figure that out. I've spent the past couple of years retraining myself to realize he has been an adult this entire time. And it was not, in fact, my job to adult for him. It is still not my job to do that for him. And that everybody else in the world has to live with the consequences of his or her actions. My gut being so well-trained to save him is not good for either of us. So I am still in the broken stage of things and sort of sorting out the pieces that I want to keep putting the pieces that I should not keep in a different pile and saying, yes, those were valid feelings, but they do not have to guide my actions anymore. I'm still very much in the process of figuring out who I am after that's all said and done. just, I really appreciate Ravanja's candor here and just really giving us an insight into how sticky money can be, especially when you're raised with the expectation that your money will one day support the family or it will be family money in some way. I know a lot of people who can relate to that, but I also know, especially in the United States, that is something that we really move away from. People are supposed to be able to stand on their own. Your parents will take care of themselves. You take care of yourself. And that's sort of how our system is set up. But the reality is a lot of people have intergenerational money. And that's obviously been a huge part of Revenge's financial life her entire life. It was so heartbreaking talking to her, hearing about how, you know, I think the circumstances that she's had to deal with were tougher than what most folks face with their families. But knowing that she's gone through all of that and hasn't always felt like there was anyone else going through something similar was, I think, the thing that that struck me so much, because I think a lot of us do have financial entanglements, we might say, with family. That's a, a weird euphemism, because I think this stuff is is just really tricky. There is emotional baggage tied up in all of it where, you know, if you're if you're romantic partner is 
bad with money or you have a bad way of talking about money, like you can get rid of them. It's not always easy, but you could choose to have a relationship with someone else or not be in a relationship. If you have friends who have toxic views on money, you can make different friends. Again, not always easy, but still possible. But you can't have different family members. Those choices are made for you. And so to go through that and to feel so alone, I think is really just a product of how taboo we make money and just yet more evidence, not that we needed it, of how important it is to break down those taboos and make it both something where we can talk about money with family, but we can also talk about the fact that we have money relationships with family, with others in our lives, with our friends and say, hey, like here's how I'm involved with my parents' money or here's how I'm helping out a brother or sister. That feels like stuff that we can't talk about and that really needs to change. Yeah. Something that also Revenge just kind of hints at, but that I was like, mm, mm, I see you solidarity <laughs> is how our financial relationship with our family sheds a light on the rest of our relationship with our family. So for example, I don't speak with my father at all. And when Ravanch is talking about how she had to throw up some walls and cut her father out of her life, I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, like I've done that. You know, I've I've gone through that experience. And I do think that if we can get more comfortable talking about money in our family and talking about money with our family, it can also lead to conversations about about just our family relationships in general. So maybe that's a little bit of a reach, you know, maybe my therapist would love to hear me connect these dots. But <laughs> I feel like it's something that just the more transparency and the more grace we can have with these conversations, the more we can open ourselves up to them. I do really think it leads to healthier relationships overall. One of the reasons I really wanted to have Revanche on this show was because I really admire the fact that she did totally cut off her dad. I mean, I feel so much grief for her that it got to that point and she felt she had to do that. But I think that was a really huge and brave thing to do and to stick with and to keep talking about it on her blog. And I wanted to share that story, even though you could hear that it wasn't necessarily like the thing she was most excited to talk about. So I'm so grateful she was willing to. But I wanted to share that because people don't hear stories like that enough. Or if you do, you hear it in a way that makes it sound like the person making that choice is just this like soulless, callous, cold creature with no feelings who's just cutting someone off because they're selfish. And I wanted to share the full depth of that so you understand like this affected her and still affects her at a very deep level. It's forcing her to reshape her into entire identity. And I wanted people to hear that to give permission to folks who might need to set some boundaries with family members or friends, whether they be emotional or financial or both. I think that's really healthy. It doesn't have to be cutting someone off. I have some financial boundaries in my life that are far short of cutting someone off, but I've articulated them and it was really hard to get to that point of saying, hey, here is what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. But I think ultimately that stuff is really important for our own health, our own mental health. That's really valid. So thank you again, Revanche, for sharing. And I hope for those listening who need to hear that, that it's helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like what Cameron was saying, I loved my interview with Cameron. She was so on. It was great. <laughs> She's so knowledgeable. She's so knowledgeable. And so what I loved is she had such clear takeaways. And so, you know, whatever type of relationship you have with your family, I really think Cameron gave us a lot to work with in terms of how to bring it up. And something that I use in my own life with my romantic partner, T-Bone, is T-Bone doesn't like talking about money. It stresses him out and also it kind of bores him. And he's like, this isn't interesting. And I'm like, it's so interesting. Let's get into it. And so when Cameron said, find a, a recent article or a recent thing you've learned and let that be a way to open the conversation, I loved that because it's really inviting, hey, I just want to talk to you about something. It's not justify yourself, explain yourself. It's I'm learning this thing. What are your thoughts on this thing? And then the conversation can really unroll much more organically 
easily. So I really think that's a powerful tool to use regardless of the types of relationship, romantic partners, families, friends, et cetera, et cetera. I totally agree with that. I'm a huge fan of using the, hey, here's this thing I've been learning about. Do you know about this? Do you have any interest in this? I think that is such a great strategy rather than going in and saying, hey, I have all these answers I'm going to throw at you and hit you with. I thought it was fascinating in Cameron's interview that she was talking about kind of the idea of it's taboo to talk about these things or here are all these strategies. I mean, the very fact that we need a book like her excellent one or we need strategies or we need scripts to talk about money with family is a symptom of how broken our cultural norms are around this. The fact that even if you have a great relationship with your parents, that it's so hard to talk about money still that is wrong. You know, when you hear both like revenge had this really hard family situation and was dealing with taboos and things with that. And then people who have great relationships where their parents are on it and maybe even have all their financial act together, it's still hard. It shouldn't be that way. But it is really evidence of just how big and solid and hard to change that taboo is, but also how important it is that we all resolve to do that. And again, even if it's right now checking in on your parents and saying like, hey, how are things going with the virus? Are you able to stay home? Do you have to go to work? How well stocked are you? What does that have to do with your finances? What's your plan if you get sick and you have to go to the hospital? Do you have an advanced directive? This is actually, in a weird, strange way, a great time to bring a lot of this stuff up. We have come to the end of season four. This is our last official episode of season four, though we are going to be doing a bonus episode. So stay tuned for that in a few weeks. This this is the end of our season four. I was kind of picturing us like on the deck of a cruise ship, like waving Bon Voyage as we sail off. And then I was like, no, cruise ships forever. No, (laughs) that should actually, can we put that on the list of things that I hope the coronavirus kills off forever? Because even pre-corona, those things were like floating germ pits. Oh my God, yeah. that. Oh, and they're so bad for the environment. So I just, (laughs) I hate cruise. I've never been on one and I never will be on one. Oh, I went on one in eighth grade and it was one of the more like interesting negative formative experiences of that era of my life. So uh, yeah, interesting times story for season five, maybe. But we're sailing off a little bit into the sunset today. We're still going to be around on socials. And so we'd love to hear from you if you want to tweet at us or DM us or comment on a post on Instagram or Twitter. Those are at Fairer Sense. And please email us. We want to read lots and lots of your notes from every episode in the season, including this one. You can email us fairersense at gmail.com. We always want to hear from you. And the number one thing you can do to help the show grow is share it with a friend. So if you are a fan, we love when you tell us that, but we love it even more when you tell other people that. So please share the good word far and wide with friends. If you feel like leaving us a star review or a narrative review, especially in Apple podcasts, we really, really appreciate those. Also, make sure that you are subscribed. That means free subscribe. You just click that little subscribe button in whichever podcast app you're using, and that will make sure that you get any bonus episodes or mini seasons or anything that we're maybe talking about for later in the year. Don't want you to miss any of the good stuff that we're putting out there. Yes. And when season five rolls around, you'll be like, boom, subscribed ages ago, and it just popped up here. Incredible. 
So <laughs> podcast magic, podcast magic, baby. Let the robots do the work for you. So yeah, thank you all so, so much for listening and being a part of this season. So until the bonus episode, wash your hands, do the social distancing, stay home if you can, don't go out if you don't need to, for God's sake, skip brunch, but also from home, maybe occasionally showering, stay rad. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe occasionally shower. Maybe occasionally showering. Oh my gosh. I love it. That's the raddest thing you've ever said. <laughs> Maybe occasionally showering. Let's hashtag that. Oh my God. I love it. Stay rad, everyone. The Fairer Sense are Kara Perez and me, Tanya Hester. Editing by me. Our theme song is by The Insider, and all other music is courtesy of the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can always find me at OurNextLife.com and Kara at BravelyGo.co. I think that's the first time all season I got it on the first take. coughing over here. It is not the coronavirus. This is just like some dusty, dry air kind of situation. (laughs) Incredible.